again, my fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. It's episode 7 of 11. We have today, brand 5, the one where they meet Osha. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part 2? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Tyrion 5, the one with the sky cells, a.k.a. the gang's first trial for Tyrion. Eddard 10, the gang fights at the Tower of Joy, a.k.a. the one where it begins. No, ends. Catelyn 7, the one where Bronn fights Servardus, a.k.a. the gang has a trial by combat in the Eyrie. John 5, the gang finishes their Night's Watch training, a.k.a. where the one where John gets Aemon to take on Sam. Tyrion 6, the gang befriends the Vale clansmen, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion talks about Tysha. And finally, Eddard 11, the one where Ned orders the arrest of the mountain, a.k.a. the gang becomes the Brotherhood without banners. Thanks again to the History of Westeros mods, in particular, Bloody Ben Blackwood, a.k.a. Scott, Laura Boros, a.k.a. Laura, Rebea, a.k.a. Rebecca, and Hema Helmant, a.k.a. Tommy, for posting every chapter in our Facebook group and leading the discussions there. It's super, super helpful and adds to all the fun we're having here. Also, thanks to Nina Friel for being probably the top commenter and as well as helping us out by making timestamps. We have timestamps in all the videos now. So each chapter you can find more easily if you want to go back and check out a specific episode or specific chapter within a specific episode. Thanks also to our patrons. This Valarita's project, as is typical for us, grew a little larger than we intended. We didn't expect to have 30-plus page documents every week, but that is what we have. I'm just not kidding. We have about 30 pages roughly every week that we're writing for these. And without, our, without the support of our patrons, this would not be possible. Speaking of patrons, we are doing a couple of bonus episodes. Last week, we released a Where Are They Now episode on the tourney of the hand. And this week, we're going to be doing one on Tyrion's trials and travails. Uh-huh, yes, all the characters that he encounters in the Vale, like the people who attend his trial and several of the clansmen, will give an update on where they are now. And we'll be looking out for more opportunities to do more of the Where Are They Now series. Again, these are only available to patrons. They're pretty short. The first one was about 17 minutes, but it was fun and well-received, according to y'all. And I expect this next one will be about the same length. And hopefully just as well-received. Thanks also to Sir Buckley for his help with these episodes. His additions to the documents have been really helpful. Help me uh, help us catch a few things that we might have missed and just adds a few angles that we hadn't considered. As always, you can check him out on Isle of Faces podcast. He calls the, the follow-up episodes to Valorita Scraps and Scrolls, and that's a great title for him. So let's get right to it. Brand 5, the one where they meet Osha, a.k.a. the gang fights deserters. Or, as has been said on Facebook, 
the one where the dire wolves eat wildlings. It's a chapter that can seem somewhat mundane. They go for a ride, fight some deserters, the dire wolves get some action. We catch up with Bran. We haven't seen him in a while, but there's actually so much more. This chapter of all of the seven probably surprised me the most with things that I hadn't thought about or hadn't caught. Contrast to, say, the Tower of Joy chapter, which is probably the most important of the seven. But given what we've learned from the TV show and since it's been published, not as much. This is the one that surprised me. I think the Tower of Joy is, is more important, but I don't know that we have as much new to say about it as we do this one. Brand's lessons continue. Themes of winter and desperation are yet again mingled with mercy and death. The Game of Thrones started with major fantasy elements and backed off a bit, holding them in reserve for later, like a calculating general. But they are coming. Winter is coming. And we experienced readers know the significance of this line. Polite snow was falling. It's clear that significant time has passed. We haven't been here since Tyrion passed through. And since then, Tyrion has gone all the way to the end of the crossroads and from there all the way to the Eyrie. Bran thinks how much larger the wolves are, but that they're still only half grown. So Tyrion's plan called for teaching a young horse, one who had not yet been trained, suggesting one of about a year old. He said a yearling. This one is two years old, and Bran's thoughts are a bit of a montage as he's remembering the last few months or so. Uh, He's recalling the others training the horse for him at first, then riding with help around the yard, then riding alone in the yard. And now this is what we see the first time he's riding outside the castle with his new situation, his new saddle. Bran can't seem to leave the castle without interesting things happening, though. And they always seem to relate to what's happening in the far north. In chapter one, he goes to his first execution. It's of a night's watchman and finds direwolves, of course. He goes on his first ride after his fall here, and the same elements are there, but no one did the work for them this time. In both cases, we have people fleeing the others. What I mean about no one did the work for this in this time is that Ned, you know, and his and his sons were delivered this prisoner. In this case, these uh, deserters slash wildlings are, well, they're up about they're up to no good, I suppose. But they're fleeing the others, so you have to have a little sympathy for them, but not too much because of how this goes. Now, you could say it's more noble to swing the sword when you pass the sentence, right? It's good to hear their final words. But what if you don't listen to those words? What good is it to hear them if you don't listen? And like I said, it's all much easier when a prisoner is brought to you in chains. Desperate men are dangerous, and the thinking is that you must put them down. And with Garrett, he was so mad that his mind seemed gone. And he's an oathbreaker, so it just seems easy for Ned there. But... This group they encounter, they're also desperate and afraid. They're not mad with fear like Garrett was. They're just regular afraid. And they're not oath breakers, not all of them. And they aren't all men either, which makes it complicated too. So here's another milestone in the development of Bran as a leader. The lessons are more difficult. It's more challenging, they're more complex. It's not as straightforward as the situation with Garrett, even, that, even though that one wasn't as straightforward as it seemed. And the writing trip here is a metaphor for it all. First, he takes a few laps around the castle with his helpers and then eventually rides with his brother and his companions into the woods where danger lurks. Decisions are harder. The enemies are more deadly. (laughs) The light snow is going to become a heavy one later. Now, even though Rob is calling the shots, it's Bran who's learning from these moments. That's what's kind of obscured here. I think that's part of George's genius in that he hides what's really happening. Rob is learning as well. But we're not first-time readers, and we know that the lessons Rob learns will have a shorter-lived impact. I mean, in other words, he just 
doesn't have time to put all the things he's learned into action because his life is, well, it's not going to be much longer. A, a longer lived Rob may have, you know, had time to show off all the things he learned from Ned, but that just didn't happen. Here's a little metaphor for the small person in a large seat, which, hey, a small per- a large seat, what's bigger than being the king? So this is kind of foreshadowing, isn't it? It's hard for me to see Bran in any kind of unusual seat and not think of a throne after all we've seen. With his legs unable to grip, the swaying motion of the horse made Bran feel unsteady at first, but the huge saddle with its thick horn and high back cradled him comfortingly, and the straps around his chest and thighs would not allow him to fall. After a time, the rhythm began to feel almost natural. His anxiety faded, and a tremulous smile crept across his face. Especially the high back and the thick horn, right? Those just make you think about other types of seats. <laughs> that's, just like, that's what a thick horn makes you think <laughs> Human horn. <laughs> and just, yeah, so horns. Of course, you can't think of horns in, in The Song of Ice and Fire and not think of all these powerful horns. But of course, I went straight to Futurama for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> and just like he gets used to riding with Hodor, right? This is sort of uh, the way he gets used to things. This rhythm of feeling natural, his anxiety fading. And then eventually he's going to have to get used to sitting in the Weirwood throne later. And then, well, whatever comes after that, we'll wait and see. Wintertown, really important here. It's, it seems, I can remember the first time I read this chapter, I hardly paid any attention to Wintertown. But every time I reread, it got a little more important. And this time it's the most important of all because we're just closer and have more idea of what's coming. This chapter gives us foreshadowing via world building, a wonderful device George R. R. Martin wields so expertly. King Brand's subjects are on display, and innocent lines like this might matter more later if a direwolf, even if only a direwolf sigil, rules over them all. A few villagers eyed the direwolves anxiously as the riders went past, and one man dropped the wood he was carrying as he shrank away in fear, but most of the town folk had grown used to the sight. Yeah, the idea that snow portends more snow isn't, I wouldn't call that foreshadowing. That's just straightforward. That's just how seasons work. Even weird seasons like we have in Westeros. So even a first-time reader knows winter is coming, and Bran flat out thinks the phrase within the first few paragraphs. He thinks that winter is coming. So it's not meant to be too sneaky. But first-time readers, and even oh, and even we who have seen the show, don't know how exactly how bad winter is going to get. We just know it, that, that it will be really bad. And as they pass through this area early in their ride, we see these mundane features that are going to become really important later. Beyond the castle lay the market square, its wooden stalls deserted now. They rode down the muddy streets of the village, past rows of small neat houses of log and undressed stone. Less than one in five were occupied, thin tendrils of wood smoke curling up from their chimneys. The rest would fill up one by one as it grew colder. When the snow fell and the ice winds howled down out of the north, old Nan said, farmers left their frozen fields and distant holdfasts, loaded up their wagons, and then the winter town came alive. Bran had never seen it happen, but Maester Lewin said the day was blooming closer. The end of the long summer was near at hand. Winter is coming. There it is, right? It begs the question, though. The winter town is shelter against winter. It does nothing to help against foes living or dead it is not a place set up for war as things currently stand the winter town is buried under snow at the end of a dance of dragons 
And there are no small folk taking shelter there that we know of. But that is probably because there's no Stark in Winterfell. It's not uh, as hospitable when there's a Bolton sitting uh, on the high seat of Winterfell. I imagine the Stark lords and kings of Winterfell back in the day, the days, all the many times this happened, probably ordered the snows cleared. They probably had people put people to work and, and made the Wintertown more livable. But when there's a Bolton there, well, apparently not, at least not this Bolton. Now, surely a few of us lifted an eyebrow at Rob saying to, to Bran that Jory and Will and Heward's death were not the worst of it, that somehow Ned breaking his leg is worse than these three men's lives. Now, that kind of thinking is deeply ingrained in the nobility of Westeros, and it speaks to the many times we've referred to lordly status as something akin to demigod status. A broken leg is worth more than three men's lives here. And even Ned devalues his own men while showing them honor and respect, even love. He aimed to flee King's Landing ahead of his household, even knowing that that would put them in even greater danger. And I don't blame him too much, though. He was protecting his daughters more than himself. It wasn't his own life he was so concerned about. Still, he was ready to leave them without his protection, and that matters. Now, we're not supposed to hate Ned and Rob for this. I don't blame them too much. It's just uh, it's more of a criticism of their culture that they are brought up in. This is hardly anyone breaks out of this mold, even the best of them. After all, they don't, and they don't abuse it, right? They're not, uh, they're people like Cersei and others who abuse this relationship where Ned and Rob, even though the gap between nobility and commoners is large, they do some things to bridge that gap. But I still think we're meant to take issue with some of these values that they've been given and the way they think about human life and, and note how different it is from our own values. Well, I hope so anyway. Let's talk about Theon, hostages, and Boltons. Just as Catelyn experiences what it's like for her nobility to offer her no protection from Bale clansmen, so will Bran soon learn that same lesson. What matters in the castle doesn't always matter in the wild and vice versa. Nature does not obey kings nor queens nor lords nor ladies. The others are a lot like nature personified and they're pissed. You want to go back there, Osha? More fool you. Think the White Walkers will care if you have a hostage? And it just cuts right to the chase there, doesn't it? It, it, it? So it goes with humans who are closer to nature either through desperation or birth or both, these people are in circumstances that also do not allow them to take a hostage. It just doesn't, it's not really feasible. It comes up though, right? That the fact that Bran is a Stark, Osha suggests keeping him as a hostage, but the rest of them are like, how are we going to pull that off? Who are we going to ransom him to? So Bran's birth ultimately is discussed, but it doesn't end up really mattering as far as his value. But his value as a brother remains to Rob and others. The fact that he's a living person matters. He still has value as a hostage, but it's not his nobility that gives him that value. So it's kind of ironic that Theon, who does have value as a hostage, I mean, that's why he's at Winterfell to hold Balon back. It's because of his nobility, right? That saves him from whatever fate he would have had at the end of the Greyjoy Rebellion. So, and that comes full circle because he later takes Bran hostage under circumstances where Bran's nobility does matter uh, again, whereas it doesn't matter here. So arguably, this chapter is as much about as Bran or anything else. You know, right? Fans of ancient Stark history will see this line and perhaps think of King Theon Stark, the hungry wolf, whose statue is down in the crypts. And I guess I said that wrong. I was going to say, arguably, this chapter is as much about Theon as Bran or anyone else. I left the word Theon out. That's kind of important. Blood for blood. For once, Greyjoy did not smile. His lean, dark face had a hungry look to it, and black hair fell down around his eyes. There you go, the hungry wolf. King Theon Stark also had long, dark hair in his gaunt, where Theon Greyjoy is lean, which is similar. 
King Theon was known for exacting revenge on those who attacked the North, with possibly a few unprovoked attacks of his own mixed in there as well. He fought against wildlings, Andal invaders, the Aarons of the Vale, the Ironborn, and more. But King Theon never finds himself helpless and alone, let alone tortured brutally, like uh, our f- friend Prince Theon here, uh, who does have that happen to him. And this girl, Kyra, he waves at here. Yikes. Kyra suffers as much as almost any character in the entire series. It's a bit of a trigger warning here. Ramsey and sexual assault is coming. Uh, after Now, the reason we need a warning here is that all these other characters, you know, when we talk about Jane Poole, you know who we're, what's, what's, what that means. But Kyra, eh, this, you may not know what I'm about to say. So after Theon takes Winterfell, he brings Kyra to be his bedmate. She's fooled into thinking this is a good thing. She actually enjoys it for a brief time. But after his nightmares of sleeping in Ned's bed, he rapes her because he thinks it will make him feel better. It, it doesn't. Then She's then captured by Ramsay, who specifically asks for her. Part of This is presumably part of his psychological torment of Theon. But Ramsay sure did terrible things to her off-screen as well without Theon being around. So later, it's she, Kyra, who is allowed to escape in the fake escape scene that, that uh, Ramsay arranges. It's the one who, she comes to Theon with the keys and is thankful and says, oh, we can escape together. And Kyra throws a rock at Ramsay when they're finally captured, and she is killed off screen. We're not told how, but from our, but this line from our current chapter may tell the tale. Sweet Kyra, he said with a laugh. She squirms like a weasel in bed, but say a word to her on the street, and she blushes pink as a maid. Well, the Bolton sigil is a pink flayed man, not that crossed X-ish thing that they showed on HBO. And, uh, well, Ramsey has since named one of his dogs Kyra. Yikes, that is what he does with the more spirited uh, prisoners he hunts. And we can only hope that this dog Kyra bites his face off later. Hmm. So like the man he kills in this chapter and the others who die with him, Theon will experience extreme desperation. And though for much different reasons... Actually, real quick, Aziz, that is really interesting, the whole thing with the... the one of Ramsey's dogs, Kyra, you know, because of the Game of Thrones. Yeah, so that that, is... that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it'll just be an offhanded thing. You'd be like, that was her, or one yep. of those, you know, handful of dogs. I hope it is. That would be that would be a great way to well, not great, but yeah. as good as we could get yeah, <laughs> for yeah. for Theon, maybe. <laughs> I mean Ramsey, not Theon. Yeah. So in so they so though what Theon faces is utterly terrifying. Uh, it's much different than the enemies in this scene and what they're fleeing. It's I'm not sure what's worth the others or the Ramsey Bolton and, and Roose Bolton. It's just to pick your poison, really. Either way, there's enormous Theon foreshadowing in this chapter. Like I said, it's it's almost as much about him as it is about Bran. George R. R. Martin screens some of Theon's awfulness by giving him this heroic moment, even though it is then immediately called into question whether it was actually heroic or not. Rob argues with him. The debate that ensues kind of hides some of these details, like the fact that Bran doesn't like Theon, which stands out a lot more after the fact, uh, after we see what Theon does later, and that Theon suggests feeding Osha to the direwolves, which is kind of a harbinger of what he's capable of. That was brutal. It, it means even some of the other guards were like, oh, don't do that. That's, that's too much. And of course, through this mercy that we see from Bran, Osha and the direwolves will be a huge part of Theon's downfall, right? Theon says, feed Osha to the direwolves. And Osha and the direwolves, and it's too bad he didn't, for him, too bad for him, he didn't get his way because obviously Osha and the direwolves completely own him later. 
in a kind of a reversal of Ramsey's dogs hunting him in Kyra, Theon will hunt wolves, both the real and metaphorical kind. But as we know, Osha and Bran and company will be hiding down in the crypts with King Theon Stark's statue. But losing his hostages, meaning Bran and Rickon and them, wasn't just a huge, wasn't the end for Theon. It was just a huge blunder. The, the true downfall and Rob's is Bolton engineered. So the shadow of the Dreadfort hangs massively over this chapter because you've got Rob and Theon such a big part of it. But it's only true to rereaders. First timers literally have not heard the name the Dreadfort yet, and nor let alone Ramsay Snow's name. And they won't until, well, well, they're going to hear the dread for it in Bran's next chapter when the Norm- Nor- Normies, Northern Armies, Marshall at Winterfell. Hey, shout out to the Normies podcast, uh, YouTube channel, because I said your name by accident. And y'all are cool. <laughs> Great Dorn cosplay at Con of Thrones. And they do so at Wintertown, where, uh, to, in case that was confusing, in Bran's next chapter, the Northern Armies Marshall at Winterfell in Wintertown. So prior to this, there is that one line about Roose Bolton, just that one line. And it's Ned thinking about how Roos suggested Barristan should be executed after the Battle of the Trident. That's it. Again, Ramsay has not been introduced yet. So it's a perfect example of a chapter having massively more meaning the second time through, and also a perfect example of George giving us the answer before he gives us the riddle. Something I love to harp on and on about. Going back to Bran here, uh, who has to face both of these things, Bolton's and the others, that is, but not yet. For now, he finds himself helpless and alone after Rob rides off to find the direwolves. But sitting there by himself, shivering in the snow, that's certainly a harbinger for Bran's future, isn't it? Now, Osha's arrival ties Bran's future to this moment even more, and her frequent reminders of where the real enemy lurks to the north becomes a regular feature. But there's an awful lot of actual fantasy subtext here, too. Let's talk about the old powers that are present here. Dark Wings, Dark Words is said for the second time ever, taught to both Bran and Ned and likely plenty of others by Old Nan. Now, you could say that she is an old power. (laughs) Bran mentions that he's heir to Winterfell after Rob, which is a simple but prophetic truth. A tragic, simple, prophetic truth, I suppose. The direwolves themselves do quite a lot in this chapter, clearly. And we hear about how they're different and how much more deadly they look. Something that the show is not able to capture because that would just add even more CGI budget. Remember that too, that Bran and Rob are redheads with blue eyes. They look like Tully's. The direwolves also look different. And this is what we're supposed to imagine from them. A direwolf had a bigger head and longer legs in proportion to its body. And its snout and jaw were markedly leaner and more pronounced. There was something gaunt and terrible about them as they stood there amid the gently falling snow. Fresh blood spotted Grey Wind's muzzle. Yeah, fire and blood, snow and blood, right? Hmm. You know, the direwolves' description of them there reminds me of like the Grimm, the dogs. Feathers from Harry Potter and there's other, you know, dog harbingers of death. Yeah, they're they're dangerous looking. (laughs) They seem scary, right? (laughs) But it's not their prowess we should look at right now. I'm, I don't, you know, I have nothing new to say about that, although Shay just added something nice. <laughs> but the early signs of skin changing are apparent in this chapter, too. This is cool. Grey Wind was restless, too, Rob said. His auburn hair had grown shaggy and unkempt, and a reddish stubble covered his jaw, making him look older than his 15 years. Sometimes I think they know things, sense things. Rob sighed. I never know how much to tell you, Bran. I wish you were older. 
And there's this one too, in which Bran's sense of smell seems just extremely acute. The smells filled his nostrils, the sharp, fresh tang of pine needles, the earthy odor of wet, rotting leaves, the hints of animal musk and distant cooking fires. You're telling me Bran is smelling distant cooking fires <laughs> while standing there? Multiples? That is not a human nose he's operating with there. I can, I will put 99% odds on that one. Maybe it's just because I have a particularly poor sense of smell myself, but yeah, this thing's all for show, y'all. <laughs> but really, yeah, that just sounds way too strong to be human. What do you think, Shay? Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. Obviously, he, I mean, he has, you know, skin changing abilities. So. He's not, he doesn't even know it yet, though. Apparently. Yeah, but you definitely. <laughs> People don't smell that. I guess unless you're in a song of ice and fire, maybe everyone's a skin changer. They can all <laughs> smell every smell. <laughs> and there's this moment later. The wording is very curious here. The action is raging all around Bran, and it's kind of like Bran taps into his powers for a moment. Maybe the adrenaline of the moment sends him there. In that moment, Bran saw everything. Everything. Sounds like he's on some drugs. Yeah, he's on psilocybin. He had yeah. some mushrooms there. <laughs> So Bran is focused on Summer in that moment, and it's it's he's seeing all the death and blood and all that. But almost as important as the direwolves here, others, again, are a big part of a chapter where they don't actually appear. Only Bran overhears that line about the walkers and ransoms, which is interesting because if, if, you know, Maester Lewin or Rob had heard that, they might have been curious. They might have had more to say. But it's a huge point, too, that they aren't just deserters and that this is Wildlings and Night's Watch together which is a little unusual. So at the end of this chapter, we get this line. She'll come back to Winterfell with us and live or die by the truth she gives us. So presumably they learned that not all four of the men were deserters. By questioning Osha, I mean that they learned this. But that apparently doesn't bother Lewin or Rob too much. It doesn't really come up later. What does she tell them about the White Walkers? Presumably some things, but it, it doesn't get them to take action or worry too much. But they do take her in anyway. They don't consider those lies, I guess, or they don't um, think, you know, it's not enough to execute her. Not that they are likely to do that anyway. But this is another major feature of this chapter, Osha and the direwolves, and how just like the direwolves are brought into the household, despite the danger they pose, Osha is, you know, it would have been duty, according to Ned, to execute her. But they're bringing her in anyway, despite this danger, because that's how they operate. That's Bran and Rob. They're a little different. Osha and the direwolves will work in concert later to protect the Starks. So it was a good decision. Ned later, you know, as we talked about last time, Ned regrets executing Lady. He thinks, what have I done? This is immediately after he's heard that, that uh, Summer has saved Bran's life. So Osha, of course, and the direwolves use the crypts ruse. And then the trip to Skagos, which we're dying to find out about. And we haven't even met Davos during his reread yet. So that's still coming. Now, it's fun that these fantasy elements are coming to Bran and Winterfell before he goes to them, right? John's connection to the wildlings later. Can I just say something real quick? Our episode on the Isle of Skagos, where we were speculating and talking about stuff about it, came out six years ago next month. Oh, wow. (laughs) So there's that. There is that. (laughs) So, yeah, it's fun. These fantasy elements, rather than Bran going to them, are coming to him, but eventually he'll go to them. John's connection to the wildlings here. Uh, or late connected to the wildlings later, rather, greatly overshadows brands. But Osha is the first friendly wildling we meet. In fact, the first wildling we meet at all. Mance Raider is mentioned here, too, and his much different book arc is still up in the air. Perhaps Bran and Mance will meet, or maybe Bran will meet other wildling leaders, if not him. 
I suppose this is all part of George R. R. Martin's plan to slowly bring John along as a king candidate while masking the even more hidden eventual King Bran. Bran may change over his arc, but the Bran we currently know would not consider wildlings enemies simply for being wildlings. John and Stannis want to make them part of the realm, but I don't think either John and Stannis will sit the Iron Throne in the end. So it will be up to Bran if anyone saves the wildlings. Melisandre says the wildlings are a doomed people, but she's been wrong before. Some notes from Joe Buckley here. He points out that that uh, Bran tries best to embody the best parts of being a knight by being brave, even as he's realizing during the chapter he won't ever be one, or he's already realized this. It's quite clear. Uh, there's different, so there's different kinds of bravery at play here, and these touching moments we get between Rob and Bran are really measurable from Bran's side of things and not Rob's, but we recall you know, them holding hands before and how closeness they were, how this closeness that they've been gaining since every, the rest of their family has been gone. And that's going to make, uh, when we get to the point where Rob hears that Bran is dead, even though we know it's not true, got to keep in mind how big a deal that's going to be and why it uh, pushes him towards Jane and these other things. It was Joe who pointed out uh, that this was the first wildling we see. I had kind of forgotten that because we hear about the wildlings in the prologue, but we technically don't see any living ones. We only see bodies and living dead ones, I suppose, and chopped up pieces of wildlings. There's some similarities here with uh, Ned and Jamie's conflict in terms of brothers protecting brothers, which is kind of neat, right? You have uh, the way Jamie stands up for Tyrion and then Rob standing up for Bran in his ways. Uh, we also have Theon going on a ride with Bran. Uh, like you said, he's going to be doing that later in the, in the opposite. A few quick questions here. Um, but this is a good example of the type of question where we don't really have time to discuss in the episode, but is a great example of something that fans like y'all can discuss in our Facebook group and flick. For example, was Theon right and Rob wrong? What do you guys think about that whole scene? Was Theon right to take that shot? Is it only right because he succeeded? Or is it harder to admit Theon is right because we hate him and we love Rob, so we kind of tend to side more with Rob? And how much does bowmanship play into this? You know, some of us maybe don't know that much about the the particulars of shooting an arrow in this situation and how dangerous it really is. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Along with Water Dancer and Dance With Me Then, we have Bran's Horse Dancer. Lots of dancing going on here. It's a song of ice and fire, after all, and songs make you dance. <laughs> Little did we know that Martin is uh, an avid dancer. <laughs> He's light on his feet, too, like Illyrio, right? <laughs> Jar Jar Martin likes Natalia Tenna. That's an important little tidbit. I like the HBO scene with Theon and Osha. I mean, not only does he like Natalia Tenna, he has specifically said that her portrayal of Osha made him want to write more Osha content. Yeah, right? So So that's a good, you know, thumbs up for the show for that scene and just and for casting Natalia Tenna and for her performance. Good job. Uh, So the reason I like that scene is that Theon didn't appreciate that his life was better as a hostage and Asha saw it as an entirely different form of opportunity. It saved her life. So it's really interesting that they made that connection that the book didn't really get into as much. And uh, I appreciate that. John Hagee notes that Bran sees blue snakes uh, when one of the wildlings stomachs is torn open by a direwolf, but intestines aren't actually blue. They're more grayish purple. 
I'm not sure if that's just a mistake on George's part or if he's trying to tell us something there, but it's an interesting note. Brendan B says, what is with the line, cold fingers creeping up his spine? Just to make us think of the others in winter? I think so. It's more haunting and it's supposed to kind of foreshadow and, and, and kind of add to the mood. You know, we have these characters who are fleeing the others and I think we're supposed to think about the, you know, what they've run from and why that's so terrifying. Uh, we're supposed to remember the prologue and, and how Will felt, which is very similar to this, the, the cold seeming wrong and like the cold is hostile. Kate Bertinsky says, I noticed that they are at the, as they are leaving, the small folk bend the knee to them as they pass through Wintertown. Yeah, that's, they, some of them do bend the knee, and that's interesting. They're bending the knee to the Lord, but that kind of maybe foreshadows Bran as king. Ryan Picklesheimer says, I'm curious why OSHA and company would pass so close to Winterfell on their way south. Wouldn't they know that would be more dangerous than sticking to the deeper woods? Yeah, I wondered about that too, and it does. the book does address that. It says that they must have been desperate to be so close to Winterfell. So maybe it doesn't address it enough. It does raise the question. And I don't have a great answer for it. I assume it's partly because they're trying to stick. They need to somewhat be near uh, places where they can get food. But also maybe, but also probably they don't know where the heck they are. They just don't know the geography of the north. So part of it is coincidence. Um, these are these Night's Watch deserters. Don't probably don't know the North that well. They're not allowed to wander the North much unless they're from there, then they would have no idea. Same with the wildlings. The wildlings might know some areas south of the wall, but not this far south. They're not going to have been down here before. So I think that's the biggest factor is they don't know where they are exactly. They're just fleeing south and they don't exactly know where Winterfell is. They don't know where the Dreadfort is. They don't know where, the White, where White Harbor is. They just have general ideas of all these things. Debbie Dane has a good comment here. Tyrion gives Bran the saddle. And then Tyrion gives him the throne later. Yeah, he gives him a better seat later. Or is it a better seat? That's a philosophical question. All right, let's move on. As you can see, that chapter took a while. Uh, it's Like I said, I think it's the most important of the batch as far as analysis that's undone. But we'll see. You guys make your own call. Tyrion 5, the one with the sky cells, a.k.a. the gang's first trial for Tyrion. A.k.a. Tyrion is mortified by his treatment. You want to eat? Mord asked, flowering. Mord asks a cruel question that will come a lot more often in winter. A lot of people will want to eat and won't. Some more fun world building on display here. The sky cells are just, they're just a really cool concept. The, the Irie is fun and interesting. But is it all for not? Irie. Irie. You Irie, Irie. Irie up there? The Irie, you get an Irie up there. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. as high as honor. <laughs> <laughs> And Cat's I guess last... that is true. Yeah. That's an argument for it. Honestly, <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, but see, werewoods won't grow up there, and neither will the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's they're all lying. They have to import their they have to import their herb from from elsewhere. We need Christina up in here. Uh Lady X Triple with all of her I read jokes. <laughs> yeah. We'll report back with more jokes, y'all. So the But is the eerie all for not? The Irie all for not. In Kat's last chapter, we think winter is coming for the Vale, and how even she is underselling how bad winter will get in the Vale. In the prior chapter, Bran 5, we talked about Wintertown and the light snow, which then much later becomes a heavy snow that the Wintertown is buried under in the Dance with Dragons. Likewise, in A Feast for Crows, the Eyrie is abandoned, and apparently this is a semi-normal thing in winter for them to just abandon it. More on that later, but... It appears as though humanity has conceded one of its greatest achievements of a castle in the Great War without a fight. And they do this periodically. And there's some, there's some symbolism there, y'all. <laughs> the height of Andal culture in the region where they first landed thousands of years ago 
The Andal invasions first settled here, and they have the strongest and noblest Andal blood here, according to them. And they just yield to winter every time. That's how it's always gone in history, though, right? Valerian and Vagar also showed us the inherent weakness present in this design as well. This great height is no deterrent to a dragon, nor to winter itself. It's so very symbolic of how it's gone for the Andals and in what they've sowed for themselves. What they have not sowed is werewolves. As I said, they will not grow here amongst all these Andals. But Lysa sits on a werewood throne, and the moon door itself is made of werewolves. They are ancient enemies to the old gods and the children, even the first men, that is, the Andals, who are represented uh, by the Veil clansmen, rather opposed by the Veil clansmen. The Veil clansmen represent the old gods and the children and then that old time that is long past, but is returning. Winter's revenge on the flower of Andal nobility is rather poetic. On the other side, the Andals have always been losing to the dragons, so... Well, it's a huge part of why they came to Westeros in the first place, and the dragons have since followed them to Westeros and are, well, they're just as capable of defeating the Andals as they were before, even though there's a lot fewer of them. So, yep, that's the Andals for you in a nutshell. Or in a sky cell? Hmm. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> Giving into the sky to the blue, something that Tyrion thinks about when he's sitting uh, in his sky cell. There's another connection to that scene. It reminds me of how Sam almost gives into the cold when he's fleeing the fist of the first men. It's as easy just to give up and surrender to the cold. Hmm. Pretty hidden but brilliant subtext, I gotta say. Well done again, Germ. <laughs> this little part I'm calling Tyrion the Clever. Perhaps the most ubiquitous theme of Tyrion's arc is again prominent here, the negotiation. He makes deals. He gets what he wants by giving other people what they want. It's a classic negotiation tactic. Whether it's Bronn or Mord the Jailer or the Vale Clansman or John before them, yeah, this is what he's great at. But we are reminded that his skills are worth very little without his birth. That's important here. It's his station that grants him the right to a trial and the money that gets Mord to take his message to Lady Lysa. Of course, despite all his skills of talking, this chapter shows off his notable inability to keep his mouth shut, <laughs> something he laments repeatedly himself throughout this chapter and at other times. He wins over Mord, yeah, but hurts his cause and his body both, thanks to the beatings, by cursing at the jailer first. He, you know, gets a hold of himself, but before that, he mocks parts of the trial, and this angers Lysa. His word should not affect the justice given to him, but we know it does. It probably does. And he is in the Vale, though. Again, a proud place, the seat of Andal nobility, and they can't stand the thought of people speaking of the Vale as a place that doesn't conduct itself with honor, and Tyrion seizes on that. He also thinks through the plot surrounding the game, Game of Thrones, to this point. He thinks on how the attempted murder of Bran was so clumsy that it may have been clumsy on purpose. But much later, he and Jamie both reflect on how it must have been Joffrey, because the clumsiness was not on purpose, as they later sort of figure out. So Tyrion goes from mocking the veil and Lysa, which of course goes poorly for him, to mocking himself, which goes quite well. <laughs> Confessing to his quote-unquote crimes, showing poise amidst such danger and hostility from the ones in charge, while reminding everyone loudly of who his family and especially his brother is. Now this is super important because this is what wins Braun over, or at least a big part of what wins Braun over, and that of course saves his life. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to do a where are they now? 
And that's going to include characters like Brendan Blackfish, Braun, Nestor Royce, Albar Royce, Lynn Corbray, Lord Eon Hunter, Sir Willis Wode, Marillion, Mord, uh, this this Viperin kid who's sitting there, like Sir Viperin, I guess, one of them, Sir Morton Wainwood, Maester Coleman, the Eerie's Master at Arms. If we have any of, we're going to try to find out if Sir Vardis has any squires. Uh, he must, but we don't know if they're, we, I don't think we know their names. We're going to try. And Sweet Robin, of course. Then, of course, Gunthor, son of Gurn and the Stone Crows. And Shaga, son of Dolph, and a few other of the clansmen like Jagget, Khan, Jagget. and Torek. Yeah. Jagget, what a name. Actually, there's nothing to say about Jagget. He doesn't come I think up it's again. Jago. Jago. Jagot. Jagot. <laughs> yeah, it could be Jagot. I like Jagot more. <laughs> so, Joe, no, Joe uh, Sir Buckley points out that the Vale Lords have been waiting for something, anything to do because Lysa's keeping them out of war. And that's probably why they make such a big deal out of Tyrion's trial, because it's something, something to do. They're getting involved and they're, they're proud. Again, their pride is such a big part of it. So sitting out is, it, it hurts them. Now you wonder too, did Lysa hope Tyrion would die in the sky cells? Was that, was she, was she planning on that happening? Was she expecting it? Or did she just not think that through? I'm not sure. She could have easily you know, told Mord or ordered Mord to make sure Tyrion falls. But clearly that didn't happen. Now, we wonder too whether this line is foreshadowy, the, talking about Tyrion flying and dragons. Can you fly, mm. my lord of Lannister? Lady Lysa asked. Does a dwarf have, have wings? No, a, but a dragon rider does. Absolutely. So did we, what, what we saw with, Balerion and Vagar just flying right up to the top and saying, hey, surrender and getting a surrender is interesting. However, there's a problem with that idea. And that is, when are we ever going back to the Eyrie? They abandon <laughs> it. In a, I, now you got me stuck saying it that way. I just... They're, there's, they abandon it in a feast for crows because winter is coming. When are they going to go back there? Not during winter, I don't think. So if Tyrion ever comes to the Vale on a dragon... It'll have to be after winter is defeated. So there must be, you know, if, if the Game of Thrones continues after winter is beaten, which it very well could and probably will, then maybe that's what happens. But maybe not. Maybe this is never going to happen. Maybe it's just sort of faux shadowish. Likewise, uh, with regards to Natalia Tenna, George R. R. Martin also liked the show's choice with putting the moon door in the floor rather than as a side door like it is in the books. But that's a... Uh, that's a small thing. And of course, it's too late to change that. I really like this one line that George writes uh, with Tyrion looking out into the void. It's very Lovecrafty. Beyond was the emptiness of the night sky, speckled with cold, uncaring stars. That's a very common refrain for Lovecraft to talk about how the universe is either uncaring or, in fact, hostile. And not only has the Vale sown revenge against the old gods, but now they have Tyrion to contend with as well. So they're just making all the enemies, which might be part of the point because if he is a, you know, if he's a dragon, if he's a truly a, a part Targaryen, then that would be even more foreshadowy for how this all lines up symbolically. Scott Westbury. Uh, yeah. Real quick before you get into questions, I want to make it clear. I do not, I, anyone can say how names in the series, however they want. I was laughing at Aziz because he never says Irie. He normally says Eerie, so it was just funny. Yeah, you just, just switched me up there somehow. It's, it's like that, you flipped the switch. That was all. <laughs> to be clear. So a couple, yeah, a couple questions here for this uh, section. We have Scott Westbury. 
asking about conventions and saying, have we ever seen anyone cosplay Mord? And that is a big no. <laughs> but I do now really want to see someone cosplay as Lord Mord with gold teeth and just however Mord would deck himself out after getting all of Tyrion's money. Yeah. And of course, Tyrion, when Tyrion says he'll, he promises to give, you know, Mord more, that's, uh, yeah. Well, that's the next chapter. We'll talk about that later. Tree Girl wonders about other houses' winter plans slash modes. Like, what do they do in winter? We know what Winterfell does with the winter town. We know what the Vale does here, or the, the Eerie does here with abandoning it. What about other houses? What do they do? It's a good question. I don't know. How does the Dreadfort handle it? How does the Last Hearth handle it? Good question. People are wondering, because the term low cunning comes up here, um, Stefan B. from Flick suggests high intrigue is the opposite of low cunning. And he met, and, and Stefan is a, a German person, and he mentions that the German term Bauernschlau, which I probably said wrong, means cleverness of the peasant. And it's a, maybe a similar concept. So that's pretty cool. I like that. Nina Friel points out maybe they went a little too overboard on the heavy armor. That'll be, actually, that's a note for the next chapter when they actually have the fight. But anyway, <laughs> that's coming. And I'll, uh, so I'll come back to that. Minge Forever says, what's up with the where what's not growing there? Any deeper significance behind this? I think, yes, definitely. I think, uh, arguably, this is, this place the Andals have made is still, uh, is hostile to them because of uh, some of this stuff. But on the other hand, down in the, on the, on the floor of the mountains, it's very fertile there. But as we noted in Catelyn's chapter prior, that's, uh, that's going to not look so good during winter. Jack Hyams wonders, maybe werewoods need deep roots and richer soil? She says, theoretically, weed might actually grow on the top of the areas. That isn't a concern for that plant. <laughs> yeah. Ah, if only they had it in Westeros. Minge Forever says, I would guess all the roots join in a network. And all the way up there, there's no network to join into. You can't, you can't merge with the werewood network so high up on a mountain. There's too much stone. There's nowhere for the roots to connect. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, they go on to say no network, no trees. It would be like mushrooms. Yeah, that's very good. I like that theory a lot. Will Moss says there's a theory that the werewoods all connect under the ground into a big werewood net. And so if they can't connect to that, then they won't join. It's like, yeah, it's like an internet. Yeah, they won't connection. grow. Yeah. You can't you get, you have no, there's no port. There's no access. There's no land cable at the top of the veil. <laughs> Minch River also says, why do you think Lysa accused Tyrion and wanted him dead? She knows full well the Lannisters did not do it. And putting him on trial is sure to have put her in their crosshairs. Something she fretted. I think this is part of Lysa's instability. It's just she is not all there. Uh, she's traumatized from past things and maybe was never all that solid to begin with, uh, with her thinking and, and personality. But that's a great point that she's actually, as she speaks to keeping out of the problems with the Lannisters, she is here, you know, making it worse for herself, even though, even while blaming it on Catelyn. Great point. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay, let us move on. We got through that one a lot faster. Eddard 10. The gang fights at the Tower of Joy, a.k.a. the one where it begins, no, ends. It's also the one where Ned becomes Hand again and the one where Robert hits Cersei. He dreamt an old dream 
of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Liana in her bed of blood. A bit more poetic than our last chapter, which began with, you want eat? Well, you know, George likes to give us different looks. <laughs> we said earlier in the past episode and probably the ones before that, that events all around Eddard continue to conspire to make him recall the Tower of Joy. And there's nothing like a dream about the Tower of Joy to remind one about the Tower of Joy. What an incredible chapter. I really had no idea what I was dealing with when I was reading this book the first time so long ago. But even this chapter touches uh, the thickest of readers, which I was probably back then. It's just so good. And you just have to sit up and pay more attention. It's powerfully written. It's so huge for the plot. But like I said at the beginning, it's still mysterious after 20 years. And HBO really didn't touch on most of the mysteries. Hardly any of them, really. It showed us mostly what we knew already or what we strongly suspected. And since Ned is lying in pain as he thinks of all this and never experienced much, if any, joy in the Tower of the Hand, we need a different nickname for where he is now. Well, how about the Tower of Pain? Right? There we go. And of course, uh, you know the basics of the Tower of Joy. Ned is, but I'll go over them real quick here. Ned and his companions find it somehow which we, another part we don't know about, have their, they have their seven versus three battle where only Howland and Ned survive. Ned credits Howland with saving him from Arthur, perhaps in a manner similar to what we saw on TV. Surely you all noted, those who saw it, that we did not see a true version of Dawn on TV either, just sort of a, a I don't know, a fugazi. <laughs> so here are some details that may have gotten past you, though. The five men who died at the Kingsguard were Theo Wall. We don't really know who he is. He might be a kin of Big Bucket Wall, and hopefully he is, because then Big Bucket Wall maybe could mention Theo, and that would be cool. Ethan Glover was the only member of Ned's brother Brandon's party who was not killed by Ares, and he was Brandon's squire. And it's unclear why. Maybe because he was so young, or maybe because he was holding him as a hostage to the north. It's, not, it's unclear, but that's another smaller mystery associated with so many other large mysteries. Lord Dustin on his great red stallion, that grudge remains from Lady Dustin, who... She talks about that in A Dance with Dragons with, with Theon. That still matters. She's the one that refuses to allow Ned's bones to be buried in the north, which is another small subplot that isn't resolved yet. Sir Mark Riswell is also mentioned as gentle and pleasant. Interestingly, he's kin to Lady Dustin, whereas Lord Dustin was her husband. So maybe she has bitterness over him as well, but she doesn't actually mention him. Maybe he'd have been a cousin, but maybe not a very close one since he wasn't mentioned by her. And then there's Martin Cassell, Jory's father, of course. And of course, the Cassell presence in both of these two scenes, the one in the streets with Jamie in the rain and this one in the desert, obviously the may, a major point of remembrance for Ned, a major tie-in between the two moments. Sir Gerald Hightower had been Lord Commander since Summerhall killed his predecessor, Sir Duncan the Tall, who was an ancestor of Hodor. And Sir Oswell Went was kin to Catelyn and thus Ned's children. That's right. Catelyn's mother was a Went, Manissa Went. It's unclear on what Manissa and Oswell's connection was, but they were at least cousins. Arthur Dane, of course, is the main Kingsguard featured here. So many mysteries around him and his family and his family's history. He is a Boba Fett type character, meaning incredibly popular despite basically no screen time or almost no screen time. But as Fire and Blood reminds us, there were more people there. There were servants. Ned earlier recalls that they found him holding Liana's body. And the only other person he mentions surviving is Howland Reed. So who is they? There were servants, squires, nursemaid, something. The show portrays this as well. There's, a, there's people just milling around around Liana. 
Uh, it's and this this stands to reason. I mean, otherwise we are to believe that the Kingsguard are tending to a pregnant woman, a highborn woman carrying a royal child with no attendance. No, that does not happen. But the Kingsguard presence means more than just their loyalty. Whether or not Rhaegar and Lyanna were married has long been a point of contention in the fandom, one that will likely be solved one day. But I think the show gave us the truth, and it's always the side I favored because if Rhaegar and Lyanna weren't married, then Jon's claim doesn't supersede Danny's, And then there's no conflict. Jon can just go, I don't want it, and it won't matter because he won't have it. He won't even have the claim. It only matters... The conflict is only there if his claim supersedes Danny. So I, I think this is accurate. I think that, and, but it's basically the only new thing the show gave us. Everything else was highly suspected. We suspected that the promise was about Ned. We suspected that Rhaegar and Lyanna were John's parents. We suspected that, you know, the, all these people died at the Tower of Joy. There was very little that knew from it. It was just confirmation of things that the fandom had pretty much been settled on for a long time, literally since 1996 in a lot of cases. But there's still more going on here. Ned is questioning the Kingsguard. Why are they there? This is more proof that John is the true heir because why would the Kingsguard, these loyal Kingsguard, be guarding a bastard and not the actual heir, Viserys? Well, it only works if Viserys is not the actual heir. And Ned questions him. He says, why aren't you with Viserys? They kind of dodge the question a bit. They, they talk a bit about their honor and how their knees don't bend and how Jamie is false. And again, it's interesting how Jamie plays such a key role in both the Tower of Joy and the Tower of Pain here. Their reputations precede them in, in order to Ned. And this is why Ned is so confused. He's like, why are you here? Why are you guarding this bastard son when the real king is out there? Again, only makes sense to me if he's not the real king. And of course, all these other details line up with that. And so, well, they got to fight over it for some reason. That's just... The way they go. Arthur says, now it begins. No, now it ends, Ned says. I think Arthur was more right there. Though. Ned Ned was not correct. It did not end there. Uh, it did not end for a, by a long shot. It's still going. And we still don't know what happened. So think of this scene in comparison to what's coming for Daenerys as blood riders clash as the birth of a royal child is in progress. That's coming, you know, at the end of her book arc for this, this book. And obviously not the end of her arc in general. So... It's men oath sworn to die fighting. Mm, very interesting. Over someone's heir in, in, a lot, in, in a lot of ways. Now, that's where he was. Ned, that is. And most of who was there. And some of the reasons why. But George R. R. Martin, if he chooses to do so, and he likely will, let's be honest here, he has far more detail for us about this scene. One of the most amazing and slightly frustrating parts of this mystery is that ap- the four books after this give, a, give us much less than The Game of Thrones does. Meaning most of what we know is in this book. Attorney of Harrenhal, Barristan's Thoughts, those definitely add to the mystery. They give us more detail, but most of the Rhaegar and Lyanna and Johnstone mystery is still extremely, extremely uh, unknown to us. The relationship itself of theirs, Rhaegar and Lyanna, it's very, very likely they were in love and there was no true abduction, but that's only a tiny piece of the puzzle. And most of the puzzle pieces are obscured. We're well short of a full picture here. And it goes well beyond their relationship, like, How did Ned and his men know where the Tower of Joy was? What happened with regard to Ned returning Dawn to Starfall afterwards? What's the deal in general with Ashara Dane? (laughs) She was on the cusp of Red Herringdom by not being mentioned for several books after the first, before George R. R. Martin went and had Barristan think those deep thoughts about her, bringing her right back into the fold all again. Like, dang, she is important. You know, she she barely appears in, in the Tourney of Harrenhal. 
And, you know, it's... And then he has Barrett and think of Stark generically. So we don't know if it's Brandon or, or Ned or some people even think Benjamin possibly, but I kind of doubt that. But still, thanks, Germ. See, I call him Germ when he's, when he's, when he's tricky like that. Germ when we're more happy with him. <laughs> but this is all very human conflict for Ned, right? The dream is not brought on by magic. His conflict over his sister's death is not fantastical. It's just a real and very painful memory. But behind it all are these fantasy elements. What prophecies were driving Rhaegar? What did he know about ice and fire? What did Lyanna learn about such things? Not just from him, which they certainly had some conversations and she probably learned some things from him, but the reverse is true as well. That kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Lyanna had dealt with Howland Reed, who spent significant time on the Isle of Faces. So they would have told each other what they knew or what they learned. And you got ice knowledge and fire knowledge combining maybe. And those conversations had to be really fascinatingly interesting, but it's completely untouched by the TV show. We not, didn't even think, didn't even hint at going there. So we're definitely not going to solve these mysteries today. We didn't learn anything new from the show. <laughs> we were still where we were before. So Valar Aridus does not seek to solve the Tower of Joy, but we are trying to keep our details straight, keeping our book and show canon separate. So I hope we did that pretty well, reminding y'all of what all the mysteries are, keeping them straight as we go forward and hopefully get some answers pretty soon. But the dream isn't everything. This next part is, thanks, Bob. (sighs) Everything before that, everyone keeps saying Tower of Joy, reminiscent things. And then Robert comes in and just drops more bombs on him, completely oblivious like Robert tends to be. Cersei and Robert mention the dead. They mention eight dead from the street fight, which is the exact same number of cairns Ned builds after the Tower of Joy. Ned's new captain of guards, Alan, who won't have that post very long, says he's sent Jory's body north to Winterfell, which makes Ned think of Jory's father, Martin, and those eight cairns, one of which was Martin's. Robert then says, Jamie slew three of your men and you five of his. Now it ends. Now it ends? Come on, Bob. <laughs> what a choice of words there. <laughs> like, damn. As if Ned could possibly forget Lyanna and Rhaegar in the Tower of Joy, given his dreams, all the familiar details, and his subtle word choices. Rob just goes there without subtlety like a warhammer, just in case it wasn't clear. Rhaegar. Rhaegar won, damn him. I killed him, Ned. I drove the spike right through that black armor into his black heart, and he died at my feet. They made up songs about it. Yet, somehow, he still won. He has Liana now, and I have her. And this is very poignant in a brutal kind of way, because this is just after he hits Cersei and then talks about how a minute later he says, that was not very kingly of you. Yeah, damn right it wasn't. And it kind of goes to show that, uh, yeah, you maybe Rhaegar deserved, quote-unquote, deserved Liana a lot more than you because he was a better man. Uh, not, you know, not a better warrior necessarily, just a better person. And that's, I say that knowing full well, Rhaegar might have been kind of problematic, if not very problematic. We don't know for sure, but Robert definitely was. There's no doubt about him. Now, he then makes it worse by not just hitting Cersei, then he threatens to make Jamie his hand if Ned doesn't take the job back, while also refusing to back down on assassinating Danny. He's like, now you're broken your leg and you can't leave and you're going to do all that stuff you said you refused to do on, uh, you know, you, you were backing, you, you didn't want to do it because of your honor. So you're going to do them all anyway. And I'm not going to listen to you if you want to argue about it. And he's drinking during the scene. He's had, he can tell that he's had several cups of wine. It even says he has. And then he has trouble standing back up because he's so drunk. So he dumps all of this on Ned and it's really 
crappy thing to do. And, and then Ned's like, we need to talk for a minute. And Robert's like, no. <laughs> He does all this. He's like, I'm going to give you all this responsibility, shirk it all myself, but I'm not even going to talk to you for a minute. I'm going to go hunting. <laughs> so Ned, who has just woken up for being asleep for a week, is told, get back to work right now and nothing you want matters. <laughs> what a friend. This is how he felt just a few moments before. On the morrow, Ned said, when I'm stronger, I could not face Robert now. The dream had left him weak as a kitten. So this is how he feels. And Robert just comes in and is like, you have to do it so bad. Robert is a horrible friend. I almost named this chapter Robert Sucks. Kittens aren't weak. (laughs) They are not. That's a good point. (laughs) So next time we see Ned, he will be in pain, sitting on that painful Iron Throne, dealing with painful issues. He hasn't even had time to grieve over Jory. And this dream makes the grief far more intense. But he has his duty to attend to. Yeah. Robert sucks, but not so bad as Ares, though, as we'll hear said in a few chapters. (laughs) All right, so a couple more notes here. Maybe this was the final straw for Cersei getting hit uh, in the head there like like Robert did. Maybe that also um, moved moved her uh, timeline up a little bit. You wonder about how Jaime uh, thinks of this later. And uh, Robert also kind of sums his own attitude up in... uh, kind of it's very poignant without realizing how poignant it is joe buckley points out that he says how do you fight someone you can't hit robert it isn't all about hitting people (laughs) that's kind of that is really robert in a nutshell very summed up very well you shouldn't try to hit everyone there's other ways of dealing with foes but this is robert's is his only way of dealing with foes tragic tragic so a few questions here robert refers to cersei as Quote, the mother of my children. <laughs> Not so much, Bobby B. And that's uh, when he, Ned tries to get Robert to talk. And Robert says, uh, no, but he actually says specifically this. I am sick unto death of talk. On the morrow, I'm going to the Kingswood to hunt. Whatever you have to say can wait until I return. <laughs> Another not so much moment for Bobby. Can wait till you return. Ned re- deserves it. He told John it can wait until I return about his parentage. That's true. A lot of these it can wait. No, it can't wait. <laughs> and I am sick unto death of talk. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So regarding our watch for undead Cersei, in this scene we have her cold with anger. Some emphasis on her pale skin paired with the notion that half her face is going to be bruised after the hit from Robert, and she's escorted out by a Kingsguard, all in white, of course. It's not a lot, but it's not nothing. So we'll, we'll keep that one floating. Not, a, not much there. Now, Tree Girl says, Ned probably got Byra killed by bringing her up in front of Cersei when he says, I was there visiting your, your child or whatever, and Cersei doesn't flinch, but we know later that Byra is killed. And if Cersei didn't know about that particular bastard, then Ned gave it away. And that is indeed why she was killed. So it's a very good example of Ned just not thinking things through, not understanding the danger, not realizing how vicious Cersei is. Of course, later, it's in fact, his, you know, next episode we're going to do is when Cersei gives her line, you play the game of Thrones, you win or you die. And Ned just tells her to leave because he's going to tell Robert. So he definitely does not see how dangerous Cersei is. Uh, So that's part of what's being seen here. It's it's kind of foreshadowing. Very subtle foreshadowing. And like I said, despite how important this chapter is, 
you know, there wasn't a ton of discussion on it in our Facebook group in Flick. There was definitely some. There's always discussion on the Tower of Joy, of course. But again, it's because the fandom is loving these moments, but we kind of know them pretty well. It's been analyzed very thoroughly for over 20 years. However, there are a few questions here. Not that I can necessarily answer them, but here we are. Will Moss, night of the mid-afternoon, about 3.30, asks, how did they pull it down? Meaning, how did they pull down the Tower of Joy? Which is, I don't know, but it is more proof that it wasn't just Ned and Howland there. That's clearly evidence that there was more people present. Squires, maybe. The Kingsguard, or can you imagine the Kingsguard helping each other dress? I mean, maybe, but Kingsguard tend to have squires, you know? Jack Hyam says, Ned and Howland were totally physically and mentally wrecked. How would they have torn anything down? Yeah, if the show is accurate at all, it may not be. Howland was injured by Arthur Dent. Kate Bertinsky says, and yeah, they'd be babysitting and dealing with a bunch of corpses, apparently. Somewhere, someone somewhere made a good point that Ned would want to burn Leanna's body ASAP to destroy the physical evidence. Yeah, he did. And of course, he brought her bones back, which not her whole body, I guess. Not clear on that particular morbid detail, but it sure is easier to bring bones than a whole body, a whole rotting body that you have no way to preserve. Kind of a rough thing for Ned to have to go through. And anyway, you look at it. Okay, let's talk about Catlin 7, the one where Bronn fights Servardus, a.k.a. the gang has a trial by combat in the ear. It's the one where Cat recalls the duel Littlefinger fought against Brandon Stark, too, which I believe was referenced back in, I think, Eddard 4. It's also the one where Blackfish quits, and Cat decides it's time to leave the Vale no matter what happens in the trial by combat, because they hear that Riverrun is not unlikely to be threatened by the Lannisters. Of course, they're right. The eastern sky was rose and gold as the sun broke over the Vale of Arryn. Hey, George knew about the rose gold fad craze well before (laughs) it became popular. He's always ahead of his time, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Alyssa Arryn is prominent here. Both her tears and her statue play a role in this scene. George R. R. Martin uses a lot of methods to drive the point home, at Braun does, that the Vale's rigidity, inability to adapt, over-reliance on tradition, all are part of their downfall. Servardus needs help standing back up, wields a sword he's never wielded before, and hasn't fought against men who fight like Bronn because he only trains against people who fight like he does. Not using a shield was probably baffling to him, and he surely never imagined having a statue pushed over him. He probably hasn't even fought clansmen all that much, as he's the captain of the guard to the Eyrie, meaning he would only leave the castle when the errands do, and they would only travel in force which the Vale clansmen are not so likely to attack a large force of knights. They're going to look for smaller bandits or smaller gangs to go play bandit on. And frankly, lately, the Aarons don't leave the castle at all other than to go down the mountain. They don't go off the high road at all. They're standing pat. Not to mention Bronn is quite a lot younger than Sir Vardis. Catelyn thinks it's probably about 15 years. This is another point obscured by the TV show, which portrays Vardis as a younger man. But to me, they look kind of a similar age on the TV show and similar size. Uh, according to George R. R. Martin, though, Braun is in his early 30s in the books, meaning uh, Braun is pushing 50. Uh, Book Braun is also a good bit taller than Sir Vardis, too. Like I said, they look similar uh, sized in the show, but in book canon, that is different. Braun doesn't seem very devout. <laughs> Shocking comment from me there. Later on the high road, he shows a bit of curiosity to Tyrion with regard to the cat's paw dagger. He was you know, kind of up in the air on whether Tyrion actually was guilty or not, but he knew it didn't actually matter in terms of trial by combat. He knew the gods weren't going to make the choice there. We earlier spoke on how the old gods may claim this place, but they have no actual presence. And here's that all that stuff about the gods would uh, in a quote. 
The builders had intended it as a god's wood, but the eerie rested on the hard stone of the mountain, and no matter how much soil was hauled up from the vale, they could not get a werewood to take root here. Looks like I was saying Will Moss's name wrong. I said this, the night of the mid-afternoon about 3.30. It's the sword of the mid-afternoon about 3.30. My, my that, mistake. That is actually why I was distracted. I was going to our supporters page to see if it was wrong. <laughs> Did there. I put it wrong in there? I hadn't gotten there. Okay. I, I, got, I, just, that's what well, I will fix it if so. <laughs> so it's a shining, beautiful culture on the outside with all their marble and their beauty and this amazing structure. But it's rotting from within. They're drinking in celebration at a trial to the death and oblivious to so many of the dangers that are out there, just as they are oblivious to Sir Vardis's peril. They are just so confident he's going to beat Braun, and they're just so wrong. One future failure of judgment here is, or this future failure of judgment in particular, is outlined to us by this one Sir Morton Wainwood here. Sir Vardis is a knight, sweet lady. This other fellow, well, his sort are all cowards at heart. Useful enough in a battle with thousands of their fellows around them, but stand them up alone and the manhood leaks right out of them. How dumb is this comment? Not just that, not just he's, that he's overgeneralizing cell swords, but Braun literally just stood up amongst all these people and volunteered to fight for this really unpopular guy. Like that was anything but cowardly at heart. And it says, stand them up alone and the manhood leaks right out of them. He did just stand up alone. <laughs> and no manhood leaked out of him. The, the evidence right in front of your face says the opposite, Mr. Wharton Rain- Wainwood. I might even call you sir. Hmm. But seriously, cell swords versus knights. That There's a lot more to this than just this, this duel that's clearly coming in A Dance with Dragons, isn't it? The veil may not go up against the Golden Company directly. But this sort of thinking exists all over Westeros, and it is wrong. Sir Gl- Gregor Clegane and Sir Vardis Egan are knights. Oberyn Martell is a knight. Bloodraven was knighted, and so was Tywin. The point being, sellswords like knights come in all shapes and sizes. Getting those, getting anointed in the oils like Sandor Clegane says, all that is just a show. It doesn't mean you're a different person underneath. Most knights are killers. Uh, and heck, knights can be sellswords, like the Golden Company shows us. The Golden Company's full of knights. And uh, they don't all just care about gold, right? They, and they have a variety of skills as well. Now, Cat is unable to go so far as to think Lysa is lying about um, all various things, really, things we pointed out in, in the Tyrion chapter. But she notes something is off when she claims Tyrion is John Aaron's killer, despite the letter saying it was Cersei. It's like, wait, you told me in that secret message that it was Cersei, but now you're saying it was Tyrion? Are you, wait, what is the deal here? So she doesn't quite figure out that it's a lie, but she starts to suspect something's off. But there's not much she can do about it. Another piece of the mystery is given to her a moment later. Though she doesn't realize it at the time, astute readers do catch it, though. Maester Coleman reveals, after drinking, that John Aaron was planning this foster sweet robin at Dragonstone, though Cat thinks it was Casterly Rock. Maester Coleman is right, apparently. John Aaron did indeed want to send sweet robin to Dragonstone, in part to protect him. Cersei learned of this and wanted to have sweet robin sent to Casterly Rock, where he'd effectively be a hostage. And, of course, that is what was scheduled to happen before Lysa fled and took Sweet Robin with. Ned realizes this part at a different point. Stannis and others, including a pot boy back in Eddard 6, which is the gang meets Gendry, confirm that this was John Aaron's plan. And we can also see why he kept the plans somewhat quiet because of it getting to Cersei. But it wasn't quiet enough. 
though, apparently, because people found out. Uh, even Blackfish didn't know, for example, though. So it just goes to show that there was some confusion here and, and maybe some secrecy, but not enough secrecy, as I say. Uh, Joe Buckley points, points out that Alyssa's tears is... There's some funky language there with the tears of lease used by Lysa to kill John Aaron. That's kind of neat. And Lysa's tears, Lisa, Lysa, tears of lease. Yeah, there's that, that language is all snuck in there. Pretty cool. Uh, there's some intro to the logistics and nitty gritty of the war that has a lot more meaning when you can piece together everything that's happening with it. We don't know anything about the Vances and the Pipers and the Golden Tooth, but all those things are mentioned in terms of how the war is getting started. And Joe points out that you could have a, a Lannister versus Stark Riverlands campaign book all to itself, and it would be a great, great book. Yeah, mm-hmm. agreed. We also get to hear a little bit of how Edmure, what type of character Edmure is here, that he's uh, a, kind of a good man that maybe Cat thinks his strategy isn't going to work against Tywin, though. So, yeah, that's, that's certainly a harbinger of things to come as well. Uh, as far as the actual fight, I don't have much to say. It seems pretty straightforward. We talked about the, uh, the, uh, the extension of it with stealth swords versus knights and brawn using tactics that knights aren't used to seeing. So let's quick Q and a feature here. A couple of questions, not too many, uh, in the show, brawn and Tyrion walk away with essentially nothing, but here they're given horses and food, which sort of matters. Uh, Tommy P wonders if Alyssa's tears will ever reach the veil floor. That's, uh, that's Hayne the Hellman there, not uh, AKA Tommy P. Uh, and of course, if the legend says that if they do reach the floor, then well, that matters. While Alyssa doesn't shed a tear, uh, Catelyn sheds regular tears as well as tears of blood. And what I mean by that is Alyssa's tears are currently frozen because of winter. Now, Alyssa ends up spending a second life after death crying for those she did not cry for in life. That's the whole point of Alyssa is that she suffered all these things and and kept her poise and that she only is crying after death, after uh, she's passed on. And Catelyn sort of has her second life as Stoneheart, which is Stoneheart, Stoneface, revenge, no tears. Yeah, there's some connection there, I think. Definitely, definitely. Now, back to the point I started to make before that was a little premature, which is George uh, probably goes a little overboard here with Vardis being encumbered by his armor. Uh, Nina and Jim uh, McGeehan point that out in our Facebook group. Knights can move a lot better than that in heavy armor. There's videos of modern people doing like cartwheels in full heavy armor. So the mobility is greater than is probably portrayed. Still, though, even with that, it, what, the way it's portrayed still makes sense because you get Vardis's vision is, is obscured by his visor. And that's a big part of what happens here. And he's definitely going to be slower than Braun, even if he's not as fast as he should be. And he has trouble standing up after kneeling before the gods. But that could also be his age. That may not be a sign of how heavy his armor is. But I I think it probably was, but we can consider it in multiple angles. Anyway, that's a small point. Abort Consciousness uh, says, I always wonder where Braun got all his fighting experience from. And if he was in King's Landing during the sack, or is it just in the show that he is from Flea Bottom? I don't think his, that he's, it's mentioned that he's from Flea Bottom in the books. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I don't recall. But he would have been a little too young f- to have fought in the war, uh, but maybe not. He may have been about 16 or 17 during the rebellion, and so he may have seen some action. And if he did live in Flea Bottom, then he may have been there during the sack. And that Even would if certainly he was real his... young during a, you know, a right. peasant, he's likely to have fought 
I feel, you know, he would have fought earlier than that. As, That's you know, true. Yeah. He probably would have started fighting at a really young age just yeah. as soon as he was able to. Yeah. Yeah. So he may have been already like owned a sword while he was age 12 or 13 or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Braun, uh, Braun definitely got started early. That's, we know that much. John five is next up. The gang finishes their Night's Watch training, a.k.a. the one where John gets Eamon to take on Sam, also known as the one where John gets Sam a job. In this one, we learn more detail about the, how the Night's Watch actually works, with explanations given about the three major orders, the Rangers, the Builders, and Stewards, and then a further lesson on Maesters. You're as hopeless as any boys I've ever trained, Sarah Alistair Thorne announced when they had all assembled in the yard. Again, this is the opposite style John will use later. Alistair is sort of the... Example of how not to be a leader. Also, we see John, again, unable to leave a friend in danger. It's a bit how he hasn't given up on, like how he hasn't given up on Benjen, which also comes back up again in this chapter, meaning John insisting that Benjen is still alive. That's something we've really honed in on with regard to the Azor High prophecies and mythology is his or her role as a uniter, someone who understands the different roles needed to fight the darkness. Warriors alone will not be enough. In winter, the logistics of food supply and warmth are clearly crucial. Shelter and fortifications are as well. So the builders and the stewards are clearly going to be really important. What good are the rangers if they don't have the builders and the stewards? Not very. Knowledge of how to fight the ancient enemy as well is really important, which is where the maesters come in, as well as knowledge of how to bind wounds and other such matters that have nothing to do directly with fighting. The different metals are each a different kind of learning. Gold for the study of money and accounts, silver for healing, iron for warcraft. And he said there were other meanings as well. The collar is supposed to remind a maester of the realm he serves. Isn't that so? Lords are gold and knights steel, but two links can't make a chain. You also need silver and iron and lead, tin and copper and bronze and all the rest. And those are farmers and smiths and merchants and the like. A chain needs all sorts of metals and a land needs all sorts of people. How perfect, right? Explained is it so well. Uh, farmers, smiths and merchants, just like I was saying, you got to have all those things. The warriors are, are pretty helpless without that. Then we have uh, another follow-up line that fits in with this really, really well. You can't hammer tin into iron, no matter how hard you beat it. But that doesn't mean Tim is tin is useless. And boy, they're really talking about beating it because that is Sam is being beaten into something he's not. And it just yeah. isn't working. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. I'm too immature. <laughs> no matter how hard you beat it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm too immature as well because I also think that's funny. And it's a great point. He's saying, look, make let these people do what they're good at. Use people, use people's skills, uh, their greatest skills. Not Don't try to make them be something they're not. And to be a great uniter, you have to have that attitude, I think. Now, to do this, though, John may have to leave the wall, perhaps become king in the north or more. But he thinks here how he won't ever leave. But as we learn later, he knows nothing, Jon Snow. Winterfell was down that road, and beyond it, River Run and King's Landing and the Erie and so many other places, Casterly Rock, the Isle of Faces, the Red Mountains of Dorne, the hundred isle islands of Bravos in the sea, the smoking ruins of old Valyria, all the places that John would never see. The road was down that the world was down that road, and he was here. I had a cat headbutt my face as I was saying that. <laughs> Very distracting how cute he good, was. Good problem to have. 
So he, John also thinks among those things, he also thinks of his mother, who she might have been, and that Ned must have left her because she did something dark and dishonorable. <laughs> what, a, what a twisted uh, line of logic there. He thinks Ned is ashamed to speak of her. He just has the wrong idea completely, and it's just, just a shame that Ned never straightened him out on that. The scene has some consequences. Well, almost. The consequences come later. Chet plans some pretty serious revenge against Sam and tries to murder him at the beginning of A Storm of Swords and is no friend to John either, given this. But the others, the others just happen to show up right when they're needed to save Sam. (laughs) Chet is too afraid to go through with killing Sam once he hears those three horn blasts. Yep. Now we're going to have another where are they now in the future. It's going to be John's graduating class. But this one I'm not going to do separately. It's, clo- it's, too, it's, it's short enough that we can do it right here. But there's a, there's a small conundrum. George made a small mistake here. A very unimportant mistake. Really unimportant. One so unimportant that I'm, I'm thinking maybe after 20 years or so, people didn't notice this. Alistair Thorne says, eight of you will be graduating. But there's actually nine. Uh, there's Toad, a.k.a. Totter, who is friend to John, still alive. He's at the Shadow Tower, last we see. Gren, who is a.k.a. the Aurochs. He's also still alive, but he was sent to Eastwatch before the dead things in the water scene, meaning hard home. Remember, hard home does happen in the books, but off screen. So sure, the details could be very different. There's probably no Night King doing the come at me, bro moment there or come at me, crow. But there is definitely undead there and definitely horrors there. And Gren was probably there. Ditto Pip who was sent along with Gren to uh, Eastwatch by John again, prior to Hardhome. So they were probably there. There's also Mathar, a.k.a. Sir Loon, a ranger who is John's friend, also last seen at Castle Black. Really not sure what his deal is currently, but that's the last place we saw him. Albert, a.k.a. Pimple, who is a builder for Castle Black. He's alive as far as we know. Halder, a.k.a. Stony, ditto. Also probably alive. Jaren, ditto, but a steward instead. And Darian, a.k.a. Lover, who's also a steward, and John names him as a recruiter later, and then Arya kills him because he uh, abandons the Night's Watch for Bravos. So, By the way, yeah, I do have an explanation for where the, what happened with the ninth person. Oh yeah, Alistair just knew. He's like, I'm. I never. I never let everyone graduate. One is always called. <laughs> and Darian was called <laughs> much uh, later. No, I mean, no, I mean, he. None of those eight were the ones that called. They all graduated. Oh, all right. They all did. That's graduate. where the ninth went. <laughs> Alistair's like, okay, one of you is going. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, he says eight. He says eight names. Names eight names, and then here are nine. Jaren is the one he apparently leaves out because Jaren is seen celebrating as part of the group, but he doesn't actually name Jaren when he names the eight. So anyway, like I said, very very tiny, unimportant little detail there. But again, George has trouble with counting. <laughs> uh, a lot of groundwork being laid for John's time as Lord Commander here, as pointed out by Joe. Definitely, definitely agree. I, I was more f- focused on his this, this foreshadowing him being a king, but it's true as well that it's that this Lord Commander uh, is a step along that journey. Uh, very interesting too that, that the places John thinks about, he thinks about Dorne and Valyria. These are all places of his birth and that dream we just covered. Well, the, sorry, they're not places of his birth. They are related to the place of his birth, meaning Valyria, and Dorne is the place of his birth. So and. As Joe points out, there is nothing targier than Valyria. Eh, maybe Dragonstone, but they're, they're both pretty darn targy. And so that's kind of neat, the specific places he thinks of. And he thinks of Lyanna, 
um, as a sex worker and connects those thoughts. We can connect all that to the Barra thoughts that were just brought up by Ned and thinking about um, how that works out. So that is um, pretty strong. Ned and, and John having kind of similar thoughts in an obscure kind of way. A couple of quick uh, questions. Not too many questions from, the, from y'all on this one. Laura Boros points out that, again, this is John behaving like his mother. And, and, but this time he's actually thinking about her before behaving like her, meaning defending Sam, defending someone who is in need of defending, like Liana did with Howland Reed at the tower, attorney of Harrenhal. But uh, yeah, but it's neat that he's actually thinking about her this time. From Flick, Datura Damiana says that she wants to write a book called The Failed Pedagogy of Westeros, meaning all the bad teachers of Westeros, which is almost all of them. She says that Sirio would not be included on this list of bad teachers because he is a fantastic teacher. I got to agree. Sirio is a fantastic teacher. And I wish we saw more of him. He's a real, he's a great teacher in real life too, isn't he? Teaching sword fighting lessons at Con of Thrones. Yeah, that's true. Although we'll see whether that is, is actually true. And we see if Sean finally does better next year at Ice and Fire Con. In the <laughs> Will he have learned from him truly? I don't know. <laughs> we will indeed see. We will indeed. <laughs> okay, moving on. We have two more left. We have Tyrion 6 here. That is the gang befriends the Vale Klansman, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion talks about Tysha. Back to the Vale we go for the third time this episode. But it's the last time until this, the end of A Storm of Swords when, she, when Sansa flees the Purple Wedding. We won't go back to the Vale for a while. And yes, it is the one where we get the story of Taisha, although she isn't named yet. It's just meant her. She's mentioned, but not her name, interestingly. And some hints for what will happen to Tywin, whom we also haven't met yet. This is the only, and of course, the only one who hears this story is Bronn, unless the clansmen were listening long before they made themselves known. Not likely, but hey, Tyrion is a good storyteller. So they may have have been like, hey, this guy's got, uh, got something to say. So his silver tongue and golden birth are once again paired to great effect in this chapter, which begins with the line. They had taken shelter beneath the cups of aspens just off the high road. Aspens are an interesting choice of, of tree to use here, which this is just occurring to me right in this moment. It's not written in my notes. Aspens are a tree that grow in a network, like not unlike werewoods. But these do grow in the Vale, but werewoods don't. So that's kind of neat. He's saying, so the tree network's a tree network does exist in this area, but not a werewood tree network. That's well, it's, it's not on sneaky. top of the mountain either. It's You're right. It's not. Base. You're right. But they, had, they couldn't have gone too far. It's like a yeah. day's journey, like their yeah. first time resting. Yeah. But you're right. They're, they're, they're definitely gone, descended down yeah. the mountain. They're clearly not on the mountain anymore, or they're most of the way down it or something. But still, that's a good point. Good point. Either way. In the last episode, last episode? Whoa. In the last episode, we talked about the quiet lion theory because we saw what might be some foreshadowing for it. Here we are again. Bronn snorted. You have a bold tongue, little man. One day, someone is like to cut it out and make you eat it. Everyone tells me that. <laughs> well, everyone tells you that maybe because George is, remi- is, is telling us something. I hope not, though. <sighs> I really don't want that to happen. <laughs> but it might. It might. Now... So let's talk about Braun a bit. While Jerome Flynn's version of Braun on TV is definitely more charismatic and more prominent, he's not super different from Book Braun personality-wise, that is. In terms of where Book Braun ends up, well, he couldn't possibly do better than show Braun, right? Uh, 
but most of us are pretty skeptical that he'll even come close to that level of success. However, surviving and getting a castle and founding his own house, that could definitely happen. I just don't yeah. know about Master of Coin and Lord of Highgarden. Yeah, That's... I think getting a house and all that in a castle. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so. But no Lord Paramount of anything. <laughs> <laughs> as we wonder about both Bronn and, and Tyrion's fates as up in the air as they are, although less up in the air as they were when they were on top of the... Never mind. The Vale Clansmen are an clansman man i'm having trouble today <laughs> the veil clansmen are an interesting yet to be resolved book plot as well there's a lot still happening with them and let's spare a second for mord will he get his comeuppance for Tyrion? he was fooled here i don't i think most of us were not fooled but mord seems to have taken the bait and remember what i said this is only a taste if you ever grow tired of lady Aaron's service present yourself at casterly rock and i'll pay you the rest of what i owe you with golden dragons spilling out of both hands, Mord had fallen to his knees and promised that he would do just that. Lannisters always pay, a Lannister always pays his debts is definitely a, a, a multi-meaning phrase. It's of course the obvious is that they always pay their debts, you know, money-wise. But this also it also means they always repay, uh, they always get their revenge in this case. They always have the last laugh. Or they always have the last word. It's 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 this, and that's what he means in this case. This is that type of debt. Uh, the, the reward he has in mind is not the kind of reward you're going to want, Lord Mord. You probably should not go claim that, but it sounds like he's going to. We get a song, though not the words yet. Songs are, of course, a big part of a song of ice and fire. As of yet, we haven't gotten lyrics to a song, but they're coming. In this case, we have the song "The Seasons of My Love," which encourages Tyrion to think about Taisha. Now, here's where I recommend another uh, reread podcast. Our friends over at the Davos Fingers podcast uh, come to mind here because they love adding their own music to things. They have composed some uh, some ditties of their own, set several uh, moments in, in A Song of Ice and Fire to music, and it's very entertaining. On that note, we turn to Tyrion's lover with a name that sits in harmony with his, Taisha. But the story... Not so harmonious. And Braun, as he is able to do so well, keeps it simple, cuts to the chase. 13 or 30 or 3, I would have killed the man who did that to me. He also rhymed, hey. <laughs> nice <laughs> job, Braun. <laughs> Tyrion swung around to face him. You may get that chance one day. Remember what I told you. A Lannister always pays his debt. So I explained that part already, but hey, how is this not clear foreshadowing for Tyrion killing Tywin later? Hey, this is, I would have killed the man to do that to me. You may get the chance one day, he says. But no, in fact, Tyrion should be saying, I may get the chance one day. <laughs> in fact, he does. He did pay that debt. But when the clansmen come, Tyrion is asleep, but ready. He's been thinking of this moment and had been formulating what to say already. Most likely on the, well, I say the walk, but it was really the ride to uh, where they end up here in Nightfall. He's thinking ahead, as he does so well. He's very good at figuring out what people want, something I mentioned earlier. He brings up his family's gold, because that almost always works. But Gunthor doesn't care about that. They don't have markets or access to markets. Currency doesn't really exist in their world, not in, this, not in that type of uh, situation anyway. They, he notes that he takes note of that and then pivots to his offer to something that gold can buy, meaning things that his family does buy and has a lot of, in particular, forged steel weapons. Now that Gunthor wants. Clever as he is, Tyrion doesn't want to disarm them so that they can take revenge on the errands, which he himself wants. He wants to prove that he's a leader worth following and raiding cultures 
like the Vale Clansmen clearly are, are simple in that regard. If you lead your warriors to successful raids and get them loot, they're happy. That's number one. Pirates and Vikings, they all kind of work that way for the most part. So whether Tyrion is a dragon or destined to ride one or both or just destined to be close to them or more, we're not sure, he certainly sets a spark in the Vale as he's leaving it. And we have yet to see the full effect on that. We will see. Okay. A few quick notes here and then some more questions. Um, yes, he does think a little bit about the dagger. <laughs> he thinks about Littlefinger and all that, but he never really gets his revenge on Littlefinger for that. Maybe we'll see something later in that regard, but it doesn't, he doesn't really have a chance to fully follow up on it. And it's kind of interesting how that comes, but more on that when we actually get to that scene much later. Um, Nina Friel points out how her treatment or his treatment of Taisha is just Tywin in a nutshell, his typical swift and merciless cruelty geared to enforcing Lannister supremacy slash pride. And yeah, really just in a nutshell, just perfectly captured there. So brutal, so gross, and such a part of Tyrion still as hidden as it is at this point. But we saw evidence of it. We've seen little bits and pieces and we know more is coming. This is again, not TV show Tyrion that we're dealing with. Do not forget that. All right. Our last chapter of today, Eddard 11, the one where Ned orders the arrest of the mountain, AKA the gang goes off to become the brotherhood without banners. It's also our first close look at the iron throne. I'm wearing on my shirt. They actually have a shirt with Ned on the iron throne. That's not a, not a typical thing. And it's a Veil of Maya shirt. Yeah, right. Yeah. People probably can't see that. Veil of Maya Hold is a band up. that I think most of you probably higher. would not like. Higher. Veil of Maya. Much higher. Much there higher. There we go. They're perfect. Yeah. This is, a, show, this is a, sort, a shirt I bought at a Veil of Maya show. I imagine it's an illegal shirt. I imagine they are not allowed to make this, but I, I did get it and I do like it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> when, it's, I, when it's folded over sometimes, it looks like Ned has a really weird face. <laughs> And yeah, if any of you guys are fans of Vale of Maya, cool for you. They do sing songs about Game of Thrones. They have a Mother of Dragon song, but they're really I, heavy. I doubt most of you would like them, but I'm give them a try. I'm just cracking up it. If any of you are fans of Vale of Maya, cool for you. <laughs> <laughs> I really like one of their albums quite a lot. <laughs> it's also our first close look at the Iron Throne itself. Like I said, we get lovely descriptions of Aegon the Conqueror forging it, his attitudes about it. He didn't want his descendants to lean back. A king should never sit easy. These are just really cool world-building things that George has come up with. It's constant, the awesome world-building. It just hits us. It's just, you can't stop. It never stops. Can't stop, won't stop. Don't want it to stop. Conflict escalates, and Ned does not play it the way Varys suggests. One of the many times he's right to suspect Varys' motivations, but wrong to ignore his advice. However, Ned actually is pretty smart about most of this. He, his, his strategic thinking is on point almost entirely uh, correctly here. We're again reminded that even a decent man like Ned is vastly out of touch with the life of commoners, though. He's surprised that they mistake him for the king. And I'm not even sure they did. They call him your grace because they don't know what to say. Not because they think he's the king, necessarily. Case in point, he says he's not his grace, only to be called it again a few seconds later. Because I think that's just the commoners don't know what titles to use all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean they think he's the king. But he is nonetheless perceptive about the commoners in other ways, such as this example here. 
He studied the frightened faces of the villagers. Small wonder they had been so fearful. They had thought they were being dragged here to name Lord Tywin a red-handed butcher before a king who was his son by marriage. He wondered if the knights had given them a choice. I mean, yeah, think about it this way. Ned's, this is a very astute point by Ned. Give him a lot of credit for that. It's kind of like testifying against the mafia. I mean, like, why would you, you, you put yourself in danger? You know, they have all these ways of finding out who you are and where you live and, and all that. And you don't want to take that chance. Uh, uh, something that probably won't even make a difference. And these, and, and Ned wonders about the knights, wondering if they had been given a choice. Uh, rather, the peasants had been given a choice by these knights. And, he, and Ned thinks that how they're likely concerned with vengeance. And Piper admits that. He calls it vengeance. And Ned says, I thought this was about justice. But that is the heart of it. What matters to these lords and knights is the stain on their honor and the loss of property. They don't care about the suffering of the peasants all that much. It's, it, the peasants are property almost to them. Even the good guys think that way a lot. Ned also perceives quite well many strategic points from Tywin's point of view. This is Ned being rather smart, even though he misses the Tyrell Loras part of this. He's on top of it. Sir Edmure has sent men to every village in Holdfast within a day's ride of the border, Sir Carroll explained. The next raider will not have such an easy time of it. And that may be precisely what Lord Tywin wants, Ned thought to himself, to bleed strength from Riverrun, goad the boy into scattering his swords. His wife's brother was young and more gallant than wise. He would try to hold every inch of his soil to defend every man, woman, and child who named him Lord. And Lord Tywin was shrewd enough to know that. He's right, too, because Tywin does play the man. Uh, and, it, of course, that's a mistake on his part when he plays, when he makes, when he over rather underestimates Rob. He thinks of Rob as a boy, he kind of generalizes, and that's a big mistake on his part. But generally, that is how Tywin behaves. He considers the person he's dealing with very strongly in determining what course of action to take. Even though he usually ends up just being brutal, he still considers the person. A few moments later, we get this line, too, which is really important. Should River Run strike back, Cersei and her father would insist that it had been the Tullys who broke the king's peace, not the Lannisters. The gods only knew what Robert would believe. Okay, so this is really, really important, right? Ned has realized, has thought this through really accurately. I don't disagree with any of this. And I, I mean, it does even prove to be true for the most part. Uh, not the part about the blame being put on the Tullys, but the fact that that is probably part of Tywin's angle here is trying to get it to make it look like the Tullys were the aggressors. Now we get this very hypocritical line from Varys. When hearing what Gregor and his men did to the women and children, he says, oh, dreadful, murmured Varys. How cruel can men be? <laughs> what they did to the children? Are you kidding me, Varys? Jeez. Anyway. Varys' interest is in delaying still, but this is beyond his control. He does suggest getting the Tyrells on his side, Ned's side, by setting Sir Loras versus Gregor in what would be a rematch of their joust. Sir Loras's dirty trick would have been repaid by the ambush that Lord Barrack and company fell into instead, but of course that doesn't happen. Taking Loras hostage would make sense, which is part of Varys' thinking maybe, but he knows also that Gregor surely, surely wouldn't be able to resist killing Loras if he could. What a conundrum Tywin would have had on his hands if the Tyrells wanted Gregor's head and the Dornish wanted Gregor's head, right? If Loras had been killed by Gregor, that would have been, what a mess. And I wonder if Varys was thinking about that. And Pycelle's Tywin fanboyism is on full display here throughout this scene. He's, he's constantly saying, oh, Tywin wouldn't do that. Oh, Tywin, blah, blah, blah. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And of course, Ned is not having it. And you gotta love that. 
Here we have the Brotherhood forming. Look, check out these names and this quote. And this is the, the moment the Brotherhood was created, even though none of them knew it yet. Thoros of Mir, Ser Gladden, Lord Lothar, the men named step forward one by one. Each of you is to assemble 20 men to bring my word to Gregor's keep. 20 of my own guards shall go with you. Lord Beric Dondarrion, you shall have the command as befits your rank. Of course, Ned continuously sending his own men away just as he's about to really need them. Lord Lothar here is the head of House Mallory. He drowns in the ambush. Also killed is this Sir Gladden character, as well as uh, Sir Raymond Derry, and as well as Lord Beric, of course, but he gets right back up. Edric Dane would be there too as Lord Beric's squire. And shout out to our, our small council member, uh, Fabian Flowers, who points out that in the last episode, I, I couldn't recall whether Edric had been noted by Ned, and we do have that note. Edric tells Arya later that she or that he wanted to approach Ned, but was too shy. <laughs> so an almost there, and uh, that would have but that would have been an interesting conversation if if Edric Dane had gotten to speak with Edard about to say, "Hey, I'm named Ned too." Like Ned's like, "You are? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> why did they name you Ned? <laughs> we all really want to know why this Dane kid is named Ned." Let's talk about the actual Iron Throne, more awesome world building that we touched on briefly at the beginning of this chapter, but now we'll get into in earnest. Ned could feel cold steel against his fingers as he leaned forward. Between each finger was a blade, the points of twisted swords fanning out like talons from arms of the throne. Even after three centuries, some were still sharp enough to cut. The Iron Throne was full of traps for the unwary. The song said it had taken a thousand blades to make it, heated white hot in the furnace breath of Valerian the Black Dread. The hammering had taken 59 days. The end of it was this hunched black beast made of razor edges and barbs and ribbons of sharp metal, a chair that could kill a man, and had, if the stories could be believed. Yeah, that last bit, of course, refers to Magor the Cruel, found dead, impaled on the throne. Not sure how that happened, and that's not a mystery for today. But it's interesting, and it is what, what Ned is speaking of here. Uh, it's interesting that Ned, of all the things that the Iron Throne symbolizes, it symbolizes many things at once. In this case, George goes with describing it similarly to the dragon that made it. He says Blarian the Black Dread forged it in his uh, white hot fires. Of course, they're probably black hot because dragon's breath matches their colors, as we see later. But the, uh, the, the heat of the swords could be white. Uh, but he names this Iron Throne a hunched black beast, which is kind of similar to Balerion the Black Dread. And as we see on the show, that might be how the throne ends. Now, the throne doesn't kill Ned directly. I just want to highlight how brilliant of a point that is. I really think, like, if the Iron Throne's destroyed, that's the best thing to destroy it. It'd be dragon fire, you know. Yeah. And, you know, Balerion is burnt. I, I mean, Drogon, obviously. Yeah. Balerion comes Balerion back come again. <laughs> yeah. No, but Drogon doing it, I, I just... Yeah, it, it, this is another example of something we wouldn't have thought of necessarily. Absolutely, yeah. Because how could we possibly even imagine the, the, the like some people, somebody, some really yeah. clever person might have been like, I think if a we dragon forges, maybe a dragon will unforge I, Definitely, if we search, especially the, you know, ASYF, you know, Westeros boards, we'll find it. Someone probably but, had the idea. But yeah. now we, but now it's a big idea because yeah, we yeah. saw it. Yes. <laughs> even though it may not be what happens, that, it could definitely be what George told them. We'll see. Mm. 
So again, the throne doesn't kill Ned directly. This decision, though, arguably does. And he's sitting on it when he makes the call. So that's kind of poignant. And the man who kills him is noted to be upset by Varus. Not upset by Varus, but Varus is the one who notes that he's upset. And this is the last passage of the chapter. I chanced to see Sir Illin in the back of the hall, staring at us with those pale eyes of his. And I must say, he did not look pleased, though, to be sure, it is hard to tell with our silent knight. I hope he outgrows his disappointment as well. He does so love his work. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> he does so love his work. Yep. Indeed. A couple notes from Joe here. He points out the connection to Cat's thoughts in thinking of the strategic um, bits that are coming forth about the the precursors to the the conflict that's coming with the Riverlands and the West. He points out the Golden Tooth and how, you know, Vance and Piper and some of these characters who were were present and how they were mentioned in her chapter. And that's that's a good catch. He also points out it's really good to check your maps during rereads, make sure you keep your maps handy. Some things that were not not so easy to do back in the 90s, not all that many maps were available. But now we have an abundance of wonderful maps made by the fandom and by uh, the official sources as well. Uh, yeah, so it's an interesting line here that that jo- Joe pulled that I agree with is, is pretty important. He never trusted what a man told him from his knees, which, good point, and that's, Joe points out it's fitting given what Ned is forced to say when kneeling on the steps of Baylor, He lies about why he's being executed, why lies about his treason, because he's doing it to protect his daughter. That's a great catch. I missed that entirely. So true. Perfect. Perfectly accurate, I think. That's almost certainly what George had in mind. Great one. Uh, and a couple other points here. Tywin originally wanted to draw Ned out, as we know. He didn't know that Ned's leg would be broken, and he knows that Ned is a man who passed the sentence is going to swing the sword type. So if he's going to assume, again, because he's playing the man, as we pointed out before, he's Tywin's thinking would be, okay, Ned Stark, northerner, man who passed the sentence should swing the sword. If he wants to go after Gregor, he's going to do it himself. And that's when we can capture him. And then we capture him and trade him for Tyrion. That would have probably worked. And it may have actually gone a lot better for everyone had that worked. It's not, I'm not saying Tywin, I'm not giving Tywin credit here, but it's, it is at least relevant to mention that Tywin's plan was a lot more small. Like, he wasn't intending to start this big conflict. He was intending to do something that could lead to trading for Tyrion. And uh, it, it even would have looked really good for him in a, in a lot of ways as far as his pride matters. Because he's saying, look, we're tr- I'm trading my dwarf son for the Lord of Winterfell. Hmm. That would, to him, that would seem like they're getting the way better end of the deal. And, you know, that's uh, that, that the more valuable person is being traded for the Lannister. It's the Lannister is being equal to a lord, uh, uh, you know. So that's kind of neat. I think that's all touches on Tywin's pride and his thinking. Something that Ned analyzes really well. But Ned didn't realize this part. Ned didn't catch on to the, oh, Tywin's trying to lead me out there. That he didn't catch, but I think that is very accurate. Tree Girl points out that Robert could have easily handled all of this, but instead he went hunting. <laughs> Just easily handled all this. They would not have done the same things. Tywin would not have tried to lure Ned out. He would not have, it would have gone completely different. So except for the misplay on Loras and the Tyrells, and maybe uh, this not thinking the part about Tywin trying to lure him out, 
Ned really thought it through quite well. So it's a big pushback against Ned being dumb. Ned's not dumb. He just isn't perfect. He's definitely not as calculating when it comes to the intrigue. But when it's strategic intrigue, he seems to be on point. Um, so that's really notable. It's a good breakdown of the type of thinking Ned goes through. And this chapter, perhaps more than any other, uh, really highlights that. I really like it. It's really good. This is this one. We got more analysis out of this one than we did out of the Tower of Joy scene because, well, the Tower of Joy scene, it just it sucked up so much of the analysis in the past. It's it's such a focal point. But this goes to show how many other important moments there are, some of which may have been a little bit overlooked. But we're here to re-highlight them for you. All right. Outro. Here we are. We're winding down. That's cool. What did you think was the most important of these chapters? I always like to hear your feedback on that. I think, as I said at the beginning, Eddard 10 is certainly the most memorable, uh, long-lasting memories from the fandom. But but I think Brand 5 surprised me the most. And in a way, I'm not surprised that Brand 5 surprised me the most because we knew going into this reread that there would be lots of new discoveries in the Brand chapters in particular and in the Danny chapters. Well, today we didn't have a Danny chapter. Um, and we also were wondering about the Tyrion chapters, and there's a lot in those today as well. And we got two of them, so that's cool. Very nice. But also, even with that said, Eddard had a lot of surprises for us. A lot of new things, a lot of things that were maybe barely or not considered at all, and I just love it. So once again, having a fantastic time with Valar Redis. I hope you guys are too. We've got lots more to come, and uh, we'll be back next week with part eight. I'll go through the names in just a minute. First, a few thanks. First off, Michael Klarfeld for helping us out with the maps and the video intro and arranging for the music from Kevin McLeod to be our official Valar Rereaders music. Thanks to oh, our... Oh my God, I didn't use it at all. I'll get to use it at the end. I didn't use it at the beginning. Oh, whoops. whoops. <laughs> well, it'll be in the audio it'll version. It'll be the end to, at the end, too. Anyways. Speaking of, that's our. give thanks to our Benjineer doing a great job of keeping our editing going. Also, I want to make sure y'all remember or are aware that we'll be posting episodes from Con of Thrones 19, r- rather episodes, yeah, panels, recorded panels, edited by the engineer and put up in the near future, one at a time over the next few weeks slash months. Months, yeah, months. Also, remember Joe Buckley's Isle of Faces podcast, the Scraps and Scrolls episodes are going up on schedule right along with ours. And of course, big thanks to Ashea, handling so much at once, as always, and doing a great job. Big thanks to Xerxes this week. Last time it was Casanova. He's been keeping me company. Real sweet. Swatting at, at my face, headbutting me. <laughs> Just, yeah, really going to town. All right, folks. Next time we have Sansa 3, the one where Sansa yells that Joff is not like Robert, a.k.a. the gang gets sent back to Winterfell. At our 12, the one where Cersei says, you win or you die, a.k.a. the gang figures out about all the incest. Daenerys 5, the one where Danny eats a horse heart, a.k.a. the gang crowns Viserys. At our 13, the one where Robert dies, a.k.a. the gang tweaks the royal will. John 6, the gang swears their Night's Watch vows, a.k.a. the one where Ghost finds Benjamin's men in, you know, dead men. At <laughs> our 14, the gang usurps Robert's will, a.k.a. the one where Littlefinger did not warn Ned not to, or... Dang it. The one where Littlefinger did warn Ned not to trust him. Oh. And Arya 4, the one where the first sword of Bravos doesn't run, a.k.a. the gang escapes the Red Keep. So that's three more Eddard chapters 
There won't be, I guess there's no Catelyn chapter next time, but we do have a Danny chapter and we get back to Sansa and Arya, who we did not have this time. So that's cool. And we'll see you all next week at the usual time, the usual place, with more excited analysis of Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire. You know what to do, folks. Until next time, Valar, reread us.